All right, thank you. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them back to the book of James. So we continue our series through uh, the book of James in its entirety, just a verse-by-verse exposition that we're going to do. As you're opening your Bibles there, let me uh, join with Justin and giving to you a word of welcome. If you're here as our guest this morning in worship or joining us online, we're so grateful that you're a part of our worship experience. And we do hope that uh, during the course of this service, as God's Spirit speaks to you through the message, through song, uh, through the prayers that are offered, that, that somehow something is uh, fashioned in you, that God's Spirit speaks to you. And for some, it may mean uh, coming to a place of committing your life to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. For others, it may mean uh, that you're already a follower of Christ, but you're not a part of a church family. And faith is always, from a biblical perspective, faith is always practiced in the context of community. So we would love to have a conversation with you. So if you would just text at some point during the service or during the week, just text FL Respond uh, to that number 833-571-3475 and we can follow up with you and uh, have a conversation with you about how we can help you in that faith journey. When you catch what you are chasing, what have you got when you've got it? When you catch what you are chasing in life, what have you got when you've got it? What are you chasing? Ask any person in here that's over the age of 60, and I promise you that to the person, each one will say to you that all the things that they deemed as being important in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, what they deemed as being of utmost importance, that after age 60, the realization dawns upon you that they really weren't that important after all. There's a haunting wish for everyone in this room over age 60 that I wish I could get back that time. I wish I could get back the time and the energy and the resources that I poured into this thing in my 30s, 40s, and 50s that I thought was so important that meant something to discover that it really means nothing at all. As James points out in our text this morning in verse 11, what we discover is that we are all in the midst of pursuing something. He rightly states that at the end of verse 11. Every one of us in this room, all of us are in the pursuit of something. There is something that gets the very best of who we are, that gets us up in the morning, that we go to bed at night thinking about. There is something that we are pursuing that, that drives us in our lives. And so hearing the word of James here at the end of verse 11, that we are in the midst of our pursuits, that question looms large, doesn't it? When you catch what you are chasing in life, what have you got when you've got it? In our preceding verses, we go back and look at the first eight verses, just a fleeting glance. We see, and you'll remember if you've heard the previous messages, that James has been writing about a a single-minded quest for for the wisdom of God. A wisdom that enables us as the faith community, and we know James is writing to a messianic community, a Jewish messianic community, a group of of believing Jews. 
But James has this idea that, that we as believers, in our pursuit of the wisdom of God, it is a single-minded pursuit, it is a single-mindedness that trusts in God alone. That true wisdom has no double-mindedness about it. That when we have the wisdom of God, when we have acquired the wisdom of God, we realize that in whatever our circumstance or situations, I, I'm trusting exclusively, singularly, trusting in God. It's a wisdom that enables you to count joyful, as he says in verses two through four. It's a wisdom that enables us to consider it all joy. Whatever the trials and the circumstances of life that, that we may face, it doesn't mean that this is a joyful experience, but the joy that, that I see and the joy that I have through eyes of faith is a joy that it's a perspective that enables me to see through these circumstances to know that there is something more on the other side. And that as I endure and as I, am, as I persevere through the adversities of life, the trials of life, that it is through this process that God is able to accomplish something formative within me. That it is by the means of endurance and persevering through the trials of life that I am being perfected into this instrument of service that God would have me to be that serves him in all things and to his glory. And now the segue that he will make in verses nine through 11 is that nowhere is this more applicable than in how we deal in that particular community then, how we deal with our socioeconomic situation because he is writing to, an, to a people that were impoverished. That was the part, if not the most significant part of the trials that they were facing. That this messianic community is an impoverished, they are an impoverished people. And so what James wants them to see is to see how God is using this, their, their circumstances. Because there are people that have no leverage in, in the world, no power, no influence. They're oppressed. He wants them to see the, the position, the favorable position that they are in fact in. And it's just a continuation of how they are to look through these circumstances and to see the formative impact that it is having upon their life and the accomplishment of the life of the kingdom. He does it, I think, in an intriguing way. He begins here in verse 9 by offering the paradox of poverty. James writes in, in this verse, verse 9, he says, Now, the brother or sister, again, he's emphasizing our community with, with one another. Now, the brother or sister of humble circumstances is to glory, there's the paradox. They are to glory, he is to glory in, in his high position. It's an odd paradox, isn't it? That here's a people to whom he writes that have nothing, and yet you have everything. One would seem to contradict the other. You are a people that have nothing, and he's talking about poverty. He's talking about being poor when he's talking about being a people of, of humble circumstance. The contrast, we, we know that he's talking about a socioeconomic condition because he is contrasting these that are in an advantageous position in verse 9 with those who are in a disadvantaged position in verse 10. 
and their wealth and their riches. And so there's, there is this strange paradox here that, that having nothing, that being of lowly status, you are in fact, he says, in a high position. It's paradoxical. One seems to contradict the other. Now, James, remember, I've, I've alluded to this, I believe, a couple of times as, as, as introductory comments to, to the perspective from which James writes. James, we know, is the brother of, of Jesus, the son of another son of, of Mary, biological son of, of Mary. And, and their family was a part of a people known as the Anawim. The, uh, it's a Hebrew word that, that literally means bowed down. But in the Hebrew, in, in the Old Testament, whenever you see that word in awe, they are the Anawim, uh, these impoverished people, they, these were a people that, that, that represented poverty of, of every sort. These were a people that were marginalized, a people that were oppressed. They were vulnerable. They were lonely. They were without any kind of earthly power or leverage. And so whenever you, you, whatever that is your context, every one of us understand life through a certain lens. It's no different for James. James, his people, him and his family, uh, we see Mary would speak of this humility, this humbleness, this, this what it is of being an Anawim kind of people, even back in, in her Magnificat, back in Romans chapter 2. Listen, listen to the mother of James. She says in verse 48, Luke records this, Mary said, for he has... He, God, he has had regard for the humble state, humble, the poverty, the poor. He has had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. And then in verse 52, Mary said, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble, who were poor, impoverished. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. That same tone of writing would even represent Jesus in his writings, his teachings, and the Sermon on the Mount especially, and the Beatitudes. I mean, the very opening of, of the Beatitudes, you see the perspective of Jesus on the kingdom of God when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so for James and his family, Mary, Jesus, to be, to be a part of this, these people that were known even among the Hebrews as, as the Anawim, a people who had nothing, and yet they continued in their devotion to God, a singular focus and commitment and trust in God, had a very profound impact upon their understanding, their view of kingdom life. You see, how you and I experience life can have a very, a very profound impact upon how we, how we interpret the life of faith to which we are called. 
And so as, as the Holy Spirit was, was inspiring James to write, the brother of Jesus to write, as the Holy Spirit in, in, uh, as he inspired James to write and to record from an ethical perspective, his understanding of the life of faith, James is writing out of his life experience. And he's saying what seems to be a paradox to us. He's saying, I want you to understand that you are in, we as the Anawim, you are in an advantageous position. James doesn't write to say, hey, I feel sorry for you. Not at all. James doesn't feel sorry for himself. He doesn't feel sorry for his audience to whom he writes, this, this messianic Jewish people. In fact, he says, what I want you to do because of your perspective, listen, you're in a position to boast. It's not unlike what he has already admonished them to do in verse 2, to find joy in all trials. That same perspective carries over to the interpretation of your life. Listen, you can boast in your poverty because you understand that God is doing something formative in your life because of your position, because you have no leverage, because you have no power, no influence, because you trust in God solely. Listen, you can boast because you are now in a position to where God can do something formative in your life. James is not writing some triumphal message to, to his audience. Oh, just wait until the end. Just wait until the day of the Lord. There is some of that triumphalism to be found in Scripture where they're always looking ahead, where there is that perspective of just looking ahead to the day of the Lord when your faith will be vindicated once and for all. Not for James. That's not what James is offering. The grammatical verb tense that James is employing, he's talking about right now. Instead of you thinking that you're in a position to be bemoaned and to be pitied, no, listen, you're, you're in a position of boasting because God is, is doing something and God is able to do something in your life. I do believe that Paul would borrow from James in writing about this very kind of perspective, as we saw back in the book of Romans in chapter five, it's the same view of Paul where he, in speaking of this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, would say in Romans 5 two, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we celebrate in hope, he's talking about right now, and we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations right now. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And as we have seen in James, as we persevere, God does something formative in our lives, fashioning us into that perfect instrument he would have us to be as instruments of his service for his glory. That's the paradox of poverty. Now here's the irony of wealth. Because James writes in verse 10, but the rich person is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Now, 
it's ironic, it's quite a contrast to the paradox that we saw in, in, verse, in verse 9 regarding those of poverty. It's quite a contrast to the irony of, of wealth and, and riches. Listen, money is neutral. It's what is done with it makes it good or bad, good or evil. And so the irony is to be seen in that the wealth of the rich that he is speaking about, the irony is, is that the wealth of the rich offers them no advantage whatsoever. No advantage whatsoever. In fact, from the perspective of, of James and also the entirety of the New Testament teachings, the teachings of Jesus and, and Paul, Peter, the entirety of the, of the New Testament, the overall teaching is, is, that, is that wealth puts you in a, in a disadvantaged position. From a spiritual perspective, while the world may, may desire it, while, while the world may, desi may desire and be drawn to that, James says, listen, to be in a position of power and affluence, to be a part of a system that creates wealth and oppresses others, you may have the best of intentions in, in your wealth, but, but if you're part of a system that has made you wealthy, but it has oppressed others, you are in a very disadvantaged position. You see, when you, when you read verse 10, you can tell that, that James has a familiarity with, with, shouldn't surprise us, the Old Testament, and especially the prophets. Because what you find is a, is a strange familiarity in what James has said in verse 10. It sounds very familiar to the voice of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9 in verse 23. Listen to what the prophet wrote. This is what the Lord says. Let no wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches. But let the man, or let the one who boasts, boast of this that he understands and knows me, capital M, God. That he knows God, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. This is what brings delight to God. When his people the community of faith, a unique and distinctive people, when we live in the pursuit of mercy, justice, righteousness, all of those things have to do with the well-being of the totality, of the total number for all people, not just some people. You see, that's where wealth becomes deceptive. It always tends and always trends towards a kind of, of exclusivism. Now, to be sure, what, what James is doing here, he's trying, he's bolstering, he's bolstering the poor while he is critiquing the rich. Because James understands he's part of a system where he is oppressed. He sees a system that makes some wealthy, that affords some wealth, 
And it's the same system that, that oppresses others. And so he wants the wealthy, the rich, to understand this, this critique. That it can trend towards things that will blind you, that will make you vulnerable, that will give you blind spots, that will be, that will be detrimental to your growth in the heartbeat of what really delights God. Because wealth trends towards exclusivism. Always does. Always has. He wants to be separate. He wants to be apart. Wants to be exclusive. Wants to play by different rules. Wants to be treated differently. They don't want to be a part of the whole of us. Affluence always wants to be segregated to do its own thing with its own kind of people because they are above doing with the rest of us. Now, James is going to address this a lot, and it's going to get real uncomfortable, as it should. He's not just addressing it here. He's going to address it three more times in chapter 2. He's going to come back to it again, this whole issue that I'm talking about back in chapter 4. He's going to do it finally in chapter 5. Because this is the framework of James. This is his reference point in understanding the life of faith and what it is we are to be pursuing as, as the people of God. Now, our tendency is, is to think when we read James or any other New Testament passage where it talks about wealth, our mind goes where? It goes immediately to think about Bill Gates, Elon Musk. Well, that's, that's who he must be talking about. No, he's talking about all of us. He's talking about each one of us in this room. If you're making lunch plans, you're rich. If you're sitting here right now thinking about where you're gonna go for lunch, who you're gonna go to lunch with, where are we gonna go for lunch, and you're going to go pay for it with cash or you're going to pay for it with a, with a debit card or a credit card. You're rich. By any standard of measure around the world, globally, any one of us in this room, regardless of economic situation, you would be considered rich by the rest of the world. John would even say, in his revelation, John says, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked, this is what we guard against. Because in our affluence, we can become blind. We can develop blind spots that starts thinking in ways that are exclusive and not biblical. Start thinking in ways that isolate those like me so that I don't have to be a part of the greater body. Do you know, I've never served in a church 
where at some point in my ministry, in every church I've pastored, you know, when you lead a church, just sometimes hard decisions have to be made for the greater good of all. And I don't think a decision's ever been made. This has happened at every church I've ever been to when hard decisions are are being made. Somebody comes to me and they say, well, you know, if you upset that bunch, offerings may go down. Well, first of all, my, my first thought is shame on you for ever thinking that. That as a supposed follower of Christ, that you would even have that kind of thought that somehow you think what you have has financial leverage against the rest of us. My second thought, my second thought is, shame on me that I ever gave you the impression that I care. Shame on me for ever giving you the impression that that would somehow be leverage in the decision-making for the well-being of the church. Thirdly, I think, shame on our whole staff that we have so failed to disciple you as a follower of Christ that you would even have such worldly kind of thoughts. But we've all had that thought, haven't we? We have all had that thought. Where if it doesn't go my way, my preferences don't, are not met. I even had a guy in my first pastorate poked me in the church, told me that his, that his weekly tithe stood between me and my paycheck. Poked me in the chest telling me that. Now, I tell you, even though we're going to talk about this a lot, and man, it's quiet in this room, I love the tension. I love this that James is talking about me. And I love it when the Word of God does that, when it makes me uncomfortable, when it makes me squirm, when it kind of reboots me and makes me step, take a step back and to rethink and process some things that maybe I had gotten off track, thinking about them in ways that were more reflective of the world's ways instead of God's way. And listen, don't, don't ever, I've already given you a heads up that he's going to talk about this three times in chapter two, again in chapter four and chapter five. Don't start thinking in your head, man, I'm going to find out when, it, when those dates come up and I'm not going to be here for that. No, because then you miss an opportunity to grow. See, that's why I love the tension of the text. Because I know when a text makes me uncomfortable, that's when I'm growing. That's, that's the only time you grow in life. Listen, if you just want to come to church and you're just, and you're just comfortable all the you just want to be comfortable. I don't want to be challenged. You know what that tells me? You're just dying spiritually. Because it's a truism we are only growing as our brain is uncomfortable. It's only when I'm in a state of discomfort. It's only when, when I'm having to reboot that I know that growth is taking place in my life. And man, I love it that when James is talking about the rich and how they are at a disadvantage, I love that he's talking to me because it it challenges me. It makes me want to be aware of 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 my blind spots. To know where I'm vulnerable and falling into a pattern of worldly kind of thinking instead of an anawim, poor kind of thinking. Because see, the third thing James does is he talks about the inevitability of life. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flowers fall and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So also is the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will die out. And we are the rich person. Don't ever just read scripture thinking that it's about someone else. Unless you're reading yourself into the text, you miss the meaning of the text. You have to allow yourself to be this rich person because we all are in this room. In our pursuits, James says what is inevitable is that these pursuits will die out. I find that to be a very haunting phrase. I kept coming back to this passage this week in verse 11. It's so haunting to me. In his pursuits, he will die out. In whatever it is you're pursuing, you will die. You will die out. No matter how good it looks, no matter how it appears to be flourishing, no matter how attractive to the eye and how, how secure to the bank account, it will die out. You will die. What we have is fleeting. Now, this metaphor of nature that he uses here, I mean, we see it around us all the time. I mean, last week we get this, I mean, I get an inch of rain at my house. You know, we've had scorched earth around here for, for eight months. You get an inch of rain, man, everything greened up. You know what it is now? It's back to being brown. Heat came, scorching wind came. What I had, what I was so glad to see, it, it's fleeting. James is talking about a, a life and an, and an approach to life as a kingdom people that stands in stark contrast to the world. There's, there's no similarity. What the world deems as security and success, the kingdom of God, is, it's, it's the exact opposite. The two never go together. No similarity. R. Kent Hughes, Presbyterian minister, told the story once of a military general that was invited to, uh, to be at a, a royal, the meal of a royal court. And when he arrived, he was seated next to the court chaplain. He was thrilled, excited. He said, as he talked to the court chaplain, he asked him, he said, Pastor, he said, in our brief time together, he said, what is one thing you would have me to know about heaven? He said, General, the one thing that I would have you to know about heaven is that there, once you get there, you will not be a general. Everything is turned upside down. Everything you are chasing is fleeting. Nowhere is this more vivid than in a story about Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was three-time heavyweight champion of the world, has appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated more than any other athlete. He is known, he is the, as Sports Illustrated said, the most recognizable athlete, the most recognizable face in the world. 
Muhammad Ali. A few years before he died, a sports writer was given permission to come to the estate of Muhammad Ali and to do a story. He was given the grand tour. They went to this barn on the grounds of his estate. He said, when you walked into this massive barn, he said, hanging from the rafters were posters of all of his fights. There were portraits of him with, with dignitaries from, from around the world. The, all of these things were on the walls, the rafters. They covered the floor of this, this barn. And they were all covered in white streaks, bird droppings. Sports writer said as he walked around, was looking at everything, he said he turned and saw Muhammad Ali was standing at those double doors of the barn, gazing out across that hilly countryside. He said Ali turned to him and said, I had all the world, and it is nothing. Look now. I had all the world, and it is nothing. Look now. Maybe we appreciate more the words of Jesus recorded by Mark in the eighth chapter of his gospel in verse 36, where Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul. To truly appreciate that, you've got to look into it further. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Even if you could acquire and gain for yourself the whole world. It's not worth forfeiting your soul, Jesus said. But how many of us here would ever gain the whole world? None of us. And yet, we forfeit our soul because we seek just a small part of it. If you took the wealthiest individual in this room, Oh, let's make it bigger. Let's take the accumulated wealth, the cumulative wealth of this entire room. Do you know it doesn't even scratch the surface of the whole world? Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And we do it for so little. So I finished where I started. When you catch what you're chasing, what have you got when you've got it? We're all chasing something. 
But let's make sure we are chasing that which leads to life. Father, oh, how grateful we are for these much-needed words that challenge us, that stretch us, that make us uncomfortable. Knowing, Lord, that it's only as we are in discomfort that you are able to have any kind of formative impact upon our soul and our spirit. That it's only as we are uncomfortable that we reevaluate our lives and what we are doing with our time and our energy and our resources. That it's only as we are made uncomfortable we, we are able to come to a place of discovering what it means to be a kingdom people and not just a confessing people. Father, challenge us, stretch us in our spirit. That, Father, we might humble, humble ourselves. That we might evaluate all that you have entrusted to us. That as stewards of your grace and mercy, you have placed upon us this great responsibility. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.